titled the titled it today the promise and destruction we're going to take two chapters chapters 18 and 19 chapter 18 we're going to see the promise of a son Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in chapter 19 we're going to see the destruction of the cities of Sodom and of Gomorrah and all the cities in that plain. But the people who were unrighteous, people who did not want to follow God and the things of God and, and chose to live by the flesh and live by the world, and it brought destruction just like God said it would. And we have seen destruction, have we not? We've seen terrible things that have happened within the world as a whole, the, the great flood. I mean, they didn't learn from that. And we saw God intercede, and, and, and even the, the, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah and them, where we saw last week where the enemies came down in and, and, and the, pre, the previous studies and came down and took these people, took Lot and, and all the families and took them away in slavery. And God used a righteous man, Abram, and his, his, his people to go up and to rescue them and bring them and all their stuff back. And you would think that would open up their eyes to say, God, I need you and I need to follow you. I can no longer follow my flesh. I can no longer follow the, the ways of this world. And you would think that near-death experience in slavery would have changed their mind. But it didn't. They went right back to those cities and right back to the life and back to the things that go against God. And now we're going to see God himself is going to bring judgment upon these cities because of their unrighteousness. So in chapter 17, remember Abram, having received God's word and promise of, about Isaac, Abraham immediately obeyed God's commandment. And the commandment was there was going to be a symbol or an outward sign of their, their devotion, their their agreement, their covenant, that, 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 that bond with God, and that was going to be a circumcision of all men. And Abram, at 99 years old, didn't think about the consequences or the hurt and the pain and the risks and all that stuff. That he just was obedient, immediate obedience to what God said to do. And every single male in his household was circumcised that day to include himself. The cutting away of the flesh that has to happen and in, a, in a covenant in a relationship with God. Scripture refers to it as a symbol, a separation or a purity or a loyalty to the covenant that God had made to Abraham. And we see this also in the scriptures and other places where we see Moses said that God could circumcise the hearts of his people so that they might be devoted to him. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. Paul writes that circumcision of the heart or being an inward set apart by the spirit of God to be separated, to be circumcised away from the world, away from the flesh, but in the spirit was evidence of their salvation in the fellowship with God. 
We see that in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 in Romans 4, 11. One must turn in confidence to God in his promises. That's how we live by faith. We turn our lives to God Almighty because of the confidence we have in him and him alone. And when we do turn our confidence to God and his promises, we lay aside the natural strength of man. Our natural wisdom, our intellect, our strength, we put that aside because it has no value compared to our God Almighty. We also see in the scriptures in Jeremiah 9, 26 and Ezekiel 44, 7 through 9, that unbelief is described as having an uncircumcised heart. One who lives by his flesh. One who lives by the world's standards and not God's. And so Abraham, through obedience of his, because of his relationship with God, he was obedient and he changed his life. He did not continue to live the same life. And to think you're set apart and you're living a life that wants to be a pure life in God and continue to think you can live by your flesh and live by the world standards, you've been fooled, you've been deceived. So we see here a promise. And we're going to see the promise again that God is going to come back to Abraham and Sarah once again. And tell him a promise that he just had given. Remember, he gave a promise 13 years prior. He was silent for 13 years. And then he had to come back and remind them of a promise that he gave. It took 13 years. That will test your patience. That will test your faith. That will test your relationships. But now we see today, it didn't, he didn't wait another 13 years. He only waited three more months or so. Before he came back to bring and remind Abraham and Sarah of the promise. Just three months. It's fascinating. As we go through the scriptures here. Let's see if I can. I need to pick up because we have two chapters to cover here. Let's see if we can make it. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terabith trees in Mamre. As he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So here's Abraham. He's in this tent. He's sitting outside. It's the heat of the day. No one does anything in the desert in the heat of the day. He's sitting outside by his flap of his tent. Enjoying the day. Probably just sitting and meditating and just talking to God. Just relaxing here we see. So he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold three men were standing before him. And when he saw them he ran from the tent door to meet them. And bowed himself to the ground and said my Lord. If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by in as much as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. What a, what a moment. This is just a normal day. You're sitting outside the tent. You're trying to stay cool. Nothing happens during the heat of the day. And three men show up. 
Notice in my, my, my Bible here, it says, my Lord, and, and it's capital L, meaning he recognized that it was the Lord himself. This wasn't just three strangers. He, he just knew he recognized the Lord. Apparently, this happened a short time just after he saw him back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 21. So he had recognition. He'd seen him. Remember, this is like, I think, the seventh time he saw the Lord had appeared to Abraham. He not only heard it, knew his voice, he understood, he knew what he, who he was. And God said to Sarah, back in, in verse 21 of 17, that God said to Sarah would give birth one year later, and at this time she is not yet pregnant. So this couldn't be more than only about three months from the time that they last saw them. But he, he, but he comes and he appears with them, but two other people with the Lord. We know in chapter 19 that these two men were angels. But the Lord came to Abraham and in a human appearance, another presentation of Jesus in human form before his incarnation, we call a Christophany. But here we don't know if Abraham immediately recognizes these visitors, but I believe by his words, my Lord, and it's capitalized, I believe he must have recognized this must have been the Lord himself again. Here the Lord, the person of Jesus Christ, appearing to Abraham in so many different ways. And remember, just twice before in chapter 12 and 17, we see that here he is in the flesh once again in front of Abraham, and he knows this. And he ran. At 99 years old, his man can still run. I hope that I'm with the Lord and not at 99 looking to see if I can still run. I can't even run now. But he was energized. He ran. And according to the godliness and the customs of that culture, Abraham offered hospitality of his house to these travelers. Offered them food. Offered them a place to rest. Wanted to, to, to serve them. What a heart of Abraham. He didn't sit there and say, you three people are bothering me here. I'm taking my little siesta here. Why would you even show up at my door without unannounced? No, see, that's not a heart of God. The heart of God is, hey, God has sent you my way. There must be a reason, regardless if you're a stranger or not. I'm here to help you. What can I do for you to give hospitality? Definitely a gift of hospitality was given to, to Abraham here. And then verse 6, so Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And then Abraham ran to the herd, here he is running again, to the herd, and took a tender and good calf and gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the, and the calf, which he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. So here he is, I'm just going to wash your feet. I'll just get a little bit of morsel of bread, and we'll just get some water. We'll just be keep a simple like, no, no. He said, this is the Lord. I'm not just going to keep it simple here. I'm going to go get the best right here. He went to Sarah, get the fine meal. 
get this kneaded and make some cakes. And anyway, he finds a young man and says, hey, I just picked out the most tender and good calf that I had, the best for the Lord. I'm giving the best. I'm not giving the sickly young one that we're just about to kill. No, no, no. Get the best looking one because that's what the Lord deserves is the best from me. Not a half heart, not some quasi makeup. Let's see how he, you know, bread is good enough for him. He didn't tell me ahead of time. I can't. No, no. Get the best for the Lord. Give my best. Do we give our best to the Lord or are we just giving half-hearted attempts? He wanted to, to, to show the love that he had to these visitors who were there. And then it's a customi- customary. He did not eat with them. He waited until they had their fill and they had all they needed to until their bellies were filled. Then, then, as the head of the household, then you ate, if there was any food left over. You let your visitors eat first. Then they said to him, in verse 9, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. (laughs) Oh, what is Sarah doing? (laughs) Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Can you see the glass up against the tent? Hello? Who's that? (laughs) You know, someone's at the door. It's amazing how they don't come to the door. It's like, who was at the door? You had your ear pressed up and looking out the window. What do you mean you don't know who wasn't at the door? Of course you knew who was at the door. For some reason, Sarah didn't want to come out. The Lord obviously said, where's Sarah? She was in there listening. But why did God have to, to repeat the promise to, to, to Abraham and Sarah, the fact that they were going to have a son? Well, just like, just like we need to hear God's promises repeated to us, Abraham and Sarah needed the promise repeated to, to them. We need... When God gives you a promise and you're writing it down, we need to be reinforced and reinsured, don't we? We want to hear God just reassure us of his promise that he showed us by his words. Over and over again. And here he is coming to God is encouraging and developing our faith and he develops their faith. How? We see in Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So why do we be in the Word of God constantly? Why are we going and meditating on the Word of God? Why do we go to the Word of God? Because we want to continue to hear the promises and be encouraged by God, by the hearing of the Word of God. You need to be encouraged today? Then go to the Word of God. That's why you're here, to hear the Word of God. When you feel alone and you're wondering confusion and stuff, you, you just stop and just go to the Lord. Be in his word. Let him speak to your hearts and his promises and encourage you by his word. Maybe, per, maybe perhaps Abraham and Sarah needed this visit to be encouraged for them to do what they needed to do 
to bring about God's promises to pass. What happened? What happens if here he is says you're going to have a son, but here they are older. They're they're 99 and 89 and they need to be encouraged to have a sexual relationship as an older couple in their marriage so that he can bring about a natural birth of his their son. That yes, God even at that age encourages us to have that intimacy with our, our spouse. And so here God comes along and says, okay, you two, I know your age. I didn't give you a promise without thinking about all the details. Yes, you can have a son, but you must be one with one another. That's how it works. It's not complex. So in verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. No more menopause, no more menstruation. I mean, she's past childbearing age, and she knows this. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, circle within within herself, saying, after I have grown old, I'm 89 here. After I grow old, now you want me to have pleasure with my husband? Are you kidding me here? My Lord, being old also. So she's laughing inside, going, "Are you? this is crazy. But her whole life, she wanted to have a child. God Almighty gave her a promise that she's going to have a child. Did they somehow spiritualize this in some way and say, oh, God really didn't mean that we would have a physical relationship and have a natural son be born. Somehow miraculously he'll give it through an adoption or through some... No, God didn't say that. God said you're going to have a child and it was going to be natural. He didn't say it any other way. So sometimes we don't even do that. God will say a promise and then you can't see how that could ever happen. And then you turn around and then you rationalize in your own head and you say, then God must mean that we're going to spiritually have it some other way and not the way he told me. We need to stop that. We need to stop over-spiritualizing things and take God's word at face value when he shows you those things. And don't allow the doubts and the these other things of the world and the rationalization and Google, Google this, Google that, tell me moment. You must trust and rely upon God's promises. And when his word says so, you must hold on to that by faith. But he was, she was past the child, the aging. She, was, she, was, she just couldn't see, even though at, at 89 and 99, God knew they were going to live, Abraham was going to live to 175, and she was going to be to 127, so maybe they're in their middle, past or even their middle age in, 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 in comparison, I guess. But Sarah understood. <laughs> I'm having a son? Or I'm having a child? Really? But then look at what the Lord says in verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? Circle that with a good question mark. Put that on your wall somewhere. And remind, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, <laughs> saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And she said, and he said, and the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. Sarah, your Lord knows all things. Sarah, he knows every thought, everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. He knows all. He's omniscient. But out of fear, you can see she makes and denies. She lies out of fear. There was no reason for her to. She, all she had to do was say, yes, Lord, I did say that. I did laugh inside. I, I'm just overwhelmed. I just can't see it. I mean, she should, should have just confessed right there in that moment. You know, God could have, in many times we say, well, God gave you the promise twice. Maybe she, he just said, fine, if you have this much doubt, I'll take that promise away from you and I'll give it to someone else. But that's not what God did, did he? Out of his grace and his mercy, he still is going to give her a son. Even with that doubt that she had, even with the denial that she was faced in with, God still said, I gave you a promise and I'm going to be faithful to complete that. Remember, if we are faithless, he, remi he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. 2 Timothy 2.13. You and I may not be faithful. But God is faithful, and he is going to do what he says he's going to do. But thankfully, God, the Lord asks a simple question to Abraham and to Sarah. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I am so thankful that God triumphs over our weak faith at times. When our faith is so weak we can't see and we just rely upon our sight and not by faith. But he, God triumphs over all that. He brings us patiently back around. And we're reminded of the scriptures when it comes to a child bearing in Psalm 139. Verse 13 and 14, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. The power and the might of Is there anything too hard for the Lord? How important it is that we need to spend time 
to know who our Lord is. And the only way you're going to know him is by spending time with him in his word, in prayer, and watching him use you and in and through your life as you serve him and worship him. And he reveals himself more and more. In verse 16, we see now Abraham really shines for you and I as a great example of a spiritual leader. We see him now, he's going to intercede and intercede by prayer and communicate with the Lord directly regarding the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, then the men arose, the two angels arose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice. And that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So the two, angel, the two men stood up. Because they were on a mission to go do what the Lord wanted them to do. And that is to go to Sodom and Gomorrah as we will see the destruction will be coming. And then the Lord says, should I hide anything from Abraham? Absolutely not. So Abraham had a very clear sense of what was about to take place. And what happened? Well, we see that in verse 20, that the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So we see here the Lord clearly communicates to Abraham that there has been an outcry. There has been prayer that has been in a form of crying out to the Lord, God, do something about these cities and what is going on in these cities. And God hears the outcry of his people who are crying out and saying, this wickedness and evilness is reigning in these cities and do something. And we see God says, I will come down and see whether they have done all together. But he's omniscient. He knows all things. He sees all things. He's all present. He knows what's going on. This is not a guessing game. And he's not trying to figure out, oh, I better get down and see it because I'm hearing a lot of people cry about it. But I don't know if I have to see it firsthand. He already knew. But he's, what he's saying here is I'm going down there and I'm going to reveal myself. I'm going to be down there and I'm going to make it so completely obvious that my justice has to be served on this wicked land, in these cities. I'm going to make it complete. I'm going to make it known and demonstrate his justice to them. And when it's obvious that they have completely turned their lives over against God and for Satan, to their flesh, to this world, they're complete. There's going to be judgment on those individuals. Then the men turned away from there and went to Sodom. 
toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Ah, see, Abraham is going to reveal a characteristic of a godly man. Make note. Men, make note. Ladies, make note. Abraham came near to the Lord and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Really? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you, Lord, to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Abraham, a righteous, godly man, not only had a heart for those who were righteous, if there was 50 in the city, these 50 righteous people who love you and follow you, would you not spare the city for the 50? But keep in mind, he's not even just talking about the 50. He's saying, if there's just some remnants of you in that city, will you not spare all those people so there might be an opportunity for them? See, his heart wasn't, get the 50 out and then torch them, Lord. Just torch them. See, that's what we think sometimes. We don't sit there and say, Lord, maybe, God, you can reach these people and their hearts will change because they're doing wickedness. No, many times we say, those are wicked people. Destroy that nation. Destroy that city. Destroy those. See, that is not a heart that God wants us to have. We need a heart like Abraham that says, can you spare them so that even the 50 that are part, can you spare them to be able to, they can be reached? And God said, okay, there's 50, I'll, I'll spare the whole city, all of them. But these two men were, these angels were going to go visit. They were going to go and look and see what was taking place into that city. God already knows. But Abraham doesn't know. He's asking, do you really want to go torch this city down, Lord? And then people are going to sit there and say, you're just a harsh God that doesn't have any grace and mercy upon. See, people always say, why do you, listen? Why do you even study the Old Testament? That's a harsh God in the Old Testament. Just study the New Testament where he's a loving God. No, no, they don't know the scriptures. You and I know the scriptures. Here he's showing grace and grace and grace and mercy all the way from the very beginning of Genesis. But we see the, the prayer of effective, fervent prayer of Abraham. We also not only should have a right heart, but look at Abraham's prayer, his intercessory prayer for those who are lost and those who are righteous for, to encourage and, and help them as well.
here's a man who spends time talking to God because effective prayer always brings you to a point of knowing who God is. And how God works in particular situations. Effective prayer is not something that is in itself a passive spectator kind of thing. It's an active moment. It's an engaging when, it call, when prayer is. You don't sit back, oh, just prayer can take or leave it. It's no big deal. Oh, yeah, I'll pray if someone asks. Oh, yeah, of course I'm going to pray for my food. Yeah, I'm very active when it comes to my food. I pray for that. No, we have to have a prayer life that is constant, like breathing for us on all things, at all fronts, at all times, regardless of how big or small. We don't sit back and just pray, oh, God, that was an interesting what you just did there. That's one thing. But why are we engaged in understanding and under the heart of God when it comes to certain things? But here are wicked cities and people knew it. And here's Abraham who knew these were wicked cities. He went and saved these people. He literally went up and rescued them and brought them back. And what did they do? They turned their minds and their eyes away from God and went right back to their wickedness. And here he is still praying for them, still interceding for them, still asking God to do something in their lives so they give him another opportunity. And God said, oh, yeah, I would. But then look at this. Verse 27, then Abraham asked and said, indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have, he's humbled here. He's got the right heart. He's a humbled heart. He's not being boisterous in a way that, God, you got to listen to me. No. He's dust and ashes, a very humbled position. I've taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city of, for the lack of five? And so he said, the Lord said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there, were there, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry. <laughs> I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed now, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Some people think, oh, man, Abraham is an incredible negotiator. Man, can he influence God in his prayer life. Face-to-face -face talking. Hey, God, me and you, you're going to listen. God patiently listened to him. Do you know why? Because Abraham's heart was right. It was not benefiting him at all. His heart was a righteous heart. It was a heart that says, I want, to, I want everyone to be saved. 
I want everyone not to have to suffer the, any judgment from you, God. I, would, I want your, to those who are righteous. And, and in, I, why did Abraham start at 50, and why did he work his way down? Why? Because he finally, probably in his back of his mind, says, okay, Lot, his wife, and I think he's had a couple of children. Well, you know, he might have had some other people. I hope it's at least 10, you know? <laughs> it's crazy, right? But we'll find out there wasn't even 10. Some say there just four. But I even question if there was even four. I think there was even maybe three or just one. Lot himself is the only one. As we will continue, you'll see what I mean. So here we are, this persistence of intercessory prayer by Abraham. The humility, the, it's just simpleness of, 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 a, of contrite heart that we're supposed to have when we come to prayer and come to God and talk to him about all things. Especially if we're interceding for other people. How we should have this humbleness and this, this contrite heart, but this, 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 this inner persistency to, and specifically... So yeah, that's a really a, a great example of effective prayer life, to make notes. He was very specific. He was humbled in heart coming to him about it. And he persisted until God and him, he realized that that was the end of the conversation. He was specific in his prayers. He wasn't this global, ah, la, la, la. And you're, 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 like, you're hearing this prayer and it's like, where are they going with the prayer? And, and it's, there's, no, there's no substance. It's just, no, no. God wants you to be specific. He wants you to be humbled when you come to him. And he also wants you to be persistent. Continue to fervently pray for the things that God has put on your heart. So that your will will line up with his will. Here's Abraham just finding, well, Lord, what is your will? Is it 50? Is it 45? 40? 30? 20? <laughs> Was he reading the, the nonverbals of the, of the Lord? And he realized, uh-oh, I better bring it down. I don't know, but he was looking to see where God's will was. And he stopped at 10. And then they moved on and went to the different directions. And then we see here in, ver in chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the cities in that area. He says right here, this chapter really is very highlighting God's judgment here. Because Abraham made a very important point that you and I need to understand. That our righteous God is not going to treat us, his children, like the wicked non-believers. He will not judge. His judgment will not come upon his children with the wicked. Abraham knew it. We see it in the scriptures. We know it. And don't let anyone else tell you that you and I are going to be judged by God with the wicked. It's not his character. It's, it's not anywhere in the scriptures that bring that along. So here we see what's going to happen. Now in verse 1 of chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Now, it, remember, it was a really heat of the day. Some things have taken place. Now we're in the evening time, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. 
And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, hear now, my lords. Notice it's a lower L, not a capital L. He just sees people or something about him. He just calls them lords. There's something special about them. But he, my lords, please turn into my servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. If you notice, these two men had no intention of going into Lot's house. They know where he's at and what his household's like. I'll stay in the open square. But, but he, he, Lot insisted strongly. So they, tur they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So we see the two visitors. They depart Abraham. And as he and the Lord continued in the conversation, they're working their way down to Sodom. We now realize and we see that there are two angels very clearly here in verse 1 of chapter 19. And we cannot see any evidence that they believe they were angels, but just pure men. Someone special, there's something about them, there's a glow about them, because remember, angels are very beautiful. Angels are always men, not women. In the scriptures, and they're very angelic. I mean, there there's a presence about them. There's a uh, they were probably incredibly handsome as they approach. Probably very clean, right? And they're entering, and there's something about them. But he doesn't realize. I don't. Believe, I don't think he knows that they're angels at this point in time. But when he they said, "Why don't you stay at my house?" And they said, "No, no we'll stay in the square." But he strongly doesn't. No, 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 no. You've got to stay at my house. Well. And he does, again, hospitality. In that culture, hospitality. If someone's in your house, they were put above your own family and taking care of their needs and protecting them. That was their culture. That's what they did. And so here he is. We see that Lot is sitting in the evening at the gate. In the culture, the leaders, the judges, the men who are overseeing and, 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 and made judgments and decisions and helped people, they are always at the gate who are leaders of that city. So now, remember, Sodom was, I mean, Sodom, but Lot used to watch from a distance about Sodom. Then, remember, he moved and planted his tent near Sodom. Then he actually moved into Sodom and actually lived in Sodom. He actually got, because he was in Sodom, got picked up by the wicked four kings above and took him off his slavery. Abraham uh, saved him, brought him back, and now he's in a ruling position, a leadership position of the city. This man is entrenched in this city. He's part of this city. It's interesting what happens here. Because as we continue here, as he's sitting and looking, these men show up at this town hall meeting at the gate like they always did it. Now, we know, don't forget, Lot was a righteous man. Remember, we know that in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 8. We know that this man was a righteous man, Lot was. But his problem is, is even though he was righteous, he compromised in his walk. He compromised. 
And because of his comprom- being compromising and, 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 and leaning toward and living like the world, it will affect, as we will see, it will bring judgment upon his family. And it will ultimately ruin his family and him. We'll see it. It's going to play out here. But he strongly says, no, 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 you've got to come. So in verse 4, now before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. Now notice that. All men, all the old and young, all the people from every quarter of the city. So there was not just one little section of the city that was bad. It was the entire city was bad. Right? Did you catch that? All. Key words when you read the scriptures. Surrounded the house and they called to Law and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them cardinally. So that we, they made their intentions very known. They weren't sitting there coming by to this house, Lot's house, to say, Oh, we have visitors in the city. Well, this is our welcome party. We're, just, we're coming to say welcome to our wonderful city of Sodom. I so hope you enjoy the city while you're here. No, that it was not their heart. We see the fact that they wanted to have a sexual relationship with these men. They wanted to have a homosexual act with these men. They want to sodomize these men. And it wasn't just a section of the city. and It wasn't just the old men. It wasn't just the young men. It was all sampling of the men. Now, I know this subject is not an easy subject to talk about, but guess what? When the scripture brings it up, I teach it. And I'm going to teach you what the scriptures say. It's God's truth. And then let God work, as the Holy Spirit works, speak it to your mind and then make the corrections necessary that lines up with the scriptures here. Because right here we see that we know that the sin of the men of Sodom is plainly connected to their homosexuality. And we know without a doubt in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, the Bible's very clear that homosexual conduct is sin. It's not a question mark. It's not debatable because the scripture is very clear for us. See, the Bible condemns homosexuality in the same context as it condemns incest and bestiality that we see in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 20, verse 13. So if you ignore homosexuality, then what you're saying in your mindset, it's okay to also have sex with animals and have sex within the same family. Incest and bestiality. But many people say, oh, never that. But then you say it's okay for homosexuality. That is that's, that's completely wrong. It's complete hypocrisy. So go back to the scriptures and understand and be in line with what the scriptures say, my brothers and sisters. Don't be caught up in what the society is trying to sway and and confuse people, because they have. See, homosexual advocates have an interest in saying homosexuals are exactly like everyone else. Except they love and they have sex with people of their own gender. 
But if you know the, the, the statistics and you know the trends and you see the health agencies and everything else tracking things, you realize that it is not the same. That there are grave consequences to that sin. And I won't go through all the statistics, but I have a boatload of statistics from the government statistics and private statistics that talk about the consequences of how that, ha that sin perpetuates. But one of the reasons why males pursue and give into this homosexual desires is because they want to immerse themselves in a lifestyle of sex because their flesh is out of control and they don't want any hindrance involving a commitment with a woman or commitment in pregnancy or any of those kinds of things. And that their heart becomes debased. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 27, 28, where Paul connects the burning lust and a debased mind with a, homo a male homosexual. It's not good. And then you see this, this so many times, because I've had these conversations with so many people over the years. And so many people say, well, you don't understand. Because homosexuals makes up 10% of the population. No, the statistics have been out there. It's never been that high. It's maybe 2% even recognize it. Maybe 1% even participate. But it's never been 10%. But they promote these things because they want you to think it's normal and it's regular. And it's, and it's, it's, just, it is just, it's just you just don't know the statistics. We see homosexuals also have an interest in saying that they were born like this. I didn't have a say. I was born like this. To prove that they're, they're okay to be doing this sin that they're doing. But all attempts this far to prove that they were born this way is only based on self-justifying thinking and not solid biblical research. But even if it is found to be the case, so what? Even if somehow someone tries to come up with something biologically to prove something, so what? The Bible teaches we are all born with a predisposition to sin. And what they're just proving is that they are predispositioned to sin of homosexuality and they fall within that 2% and they need to repent and they need to ask God to change their hearts toward that sin and walk away from it. And God will empower them to do so. And people have difficulties understanding that. But if I take that away and say, pick Alcohol, alcoholism or drunkenness or, or drugs or, or lying or any of these other things that seem to be more tolerant, you have no problem with the conversation. But why is that such a difficulty now? Because society is, is, is just labels you and calls you. I know I'll probably get phone calls and emails on this one. But the scripture's really straightforward. It's not complex here. Homosexuals also have an interest in defining themselves as gay. A word that was used to being happy and carefree. But the sad part is, is that this description is a very poor description of that lifestyle. 
Because that lifestyle leads to the highest rates of death, disease, and suicide. What gay part is that? They have been deceived, and they need help. And God is going to equip you to share the truth and preach Jesus to them because that's the only way they can be set free. And you and I are equipped to go out and do the work that God would call us to do. But speak truth in love. Love them. Love those who are battling that sin. And encourage them to continue to battle against that sin. And encourage them to be in the word of God because the word of God will transform their mind and how they see that sin that it's against God, and that's not what God is, how God designed it. So I encourage you, speak truth in love. Verse 6, so Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brother, do not do so wickedly. So now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And, he said, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one, speaking of Lot, came in to stay here, came into the city to live there, right? And he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. These are hard scriptures. We see Lot sitting there as he gets out from the door, gets it between the door and, 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 and these men that were coming after him. And he starts off by saying, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Like he's appeasing them. He's going to try to, oh, my brethren. They're brethren? They're wicked men coming again. You're calling them your brethren? Are you kidding me? But that's how he's trying to politically, you know, he's a politician sitting at the gate. He's trying to politically trying to work with men's hearts that are so debased that they're coming after these men. They're not, these, are, these are not negotiable hearts. But he tries to appease them, and look what it got him. Nothing. You see, here's a righteous man sitting in a city at the gates, trying to in a position of leadership, and you see how little of effective he was on the society of that city. Because he compromised. He lived with them. He acted like them. Or I don't know how he acted like it, but he was a part of them. He appeased them. Oh, my brethren, oh, don't do so wickedness. And then he offers up his two daughters. Now, some people say, how could he do that? Remember the culture. Women were not thinking highly in the pre-Christian culture. They were low on the, on the, social, uh, the social gathering here. So they were, they, Goliath's like, hey, no, you can have my the, the, the two daughters. They haven't been with a man. You can have them. Those men had no desire, and he, he should have known that. He went way too far. But unfortunately, he did not listen and think through. He didn't even ask. Nowhere does it show that he even asked God help us as he goes and deals with this. See, when you abandon the biblical guide for sexual morality, it 
If you abandon the biblical view and understanding of sexual morality, what guide are you using? Who are you listening to? What are you reading? To simply do as one pleases is not enough. I do what I please. It's my desires. I'll fulfill my desires. Do you see what that would bring if you just follow your desires? And it goes contrary to the word of God? You can sit there. It's little I understand why he would put those two daughters out like that. It's shocking. To think he would do that to his daughters. We see it happen once again if you know Judges. It's even worse story. Same, same play out in Judges. I, w- I won't even go into that. But here these guys want to have the sexual experience with these two angels, these two guys. They obviously did not know they were angels. But here I think this is when Lot may have gotten a clue. Verse 10. But then the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Can you imagine trying to open the door, pull Lot back in, the strength and the ability, and then comes blindness? And do you think they fled? No, they became weary still trying to find the door. You see how the heart still is... It didn't matter to them, even if they were blind. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place. Ah, which means there was not ten righteous. (laughs) There's not ten righteous in this city. And because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Here's his two daughters. They're betrothed to two men, his sons-in-laws. He went to go speak to them. And all they can do in the middle of the night when they're probably woke up is, you're joking. Lot, you're joking. Father-in-law, you're joking. Because remember, betroth means you were married. Even though you had not consummated the marriage yet, they had a preparation. But once you were betrothed, you were married in the eyes. I mean, you were, that was legal. But they had, not, they had not slept together. But these two sons, he went there to bring them in, and they just said, you're joking. That tells you how they viewed Lot. Did it not? Think about your father-in-law. If he came to you and said that, would you have an opinion of your father-in-law by looking at him and saying, you're just a jokester. You're not even serious. I'm going back to bed. Or would you look there and say, I know my father-in-law and say, that's serious. And yes, I'm packing my bags. I'm going. I don't know what's going on, but I'm, I'm, I'm going. See, you see Lot's character of a man, even in his family, deteriorated where they didn't even believe him. Men, you need to be a strong spiritual leader so when something happens, your family hears your voice. They know you're serious and they move. 
have to establish that within your household. But they blinded him. Then the men said to Lot, have you any, oh, I just read that. You're joking. I'm not joking. So you can see the angels are not omniscient. Angels didn't know who else was in his family. They had to ask the question, who do you have? Sons-in-law, sons, anybody, go find them, tell them. So they don't know everything. Angels don't know everything. But he obviously told them, I got two sons-in-law, I'm going to go tell them, we'll go do that. So what happened? Then in the morning dawn, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Look at this. Here they are. They're lingering. Why would you linger knowing that God, the Lord, is going to destroy your city? Was he waiting for his sons-in-laws? I don't think so. I think maybe the daughters were saying, Dad, we're not leaving without my, our men. Maybe that's what made him linger. Because these were some probably emotional times going on in that house. But eventually the two angels had to take them by hand and bring them out by force. Snatch them out of that city because they need to be saved from the destruction that God was going to do. And God used his messengers to snatch him out. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside and that he said, escape for your life. Do not look back, don't, do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Two commandments. Do not look back and do not stay here. What happened? Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servants has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. Oh, I'm recognizing I'm, you're being merciful here, and you're helping me, and you're saving my life, my wife's life, and my daughter's life. I get it, and I see the, the mercy, I see the favor. But he wasn't that grateful, was he? Because he still then turned around and went against the two commandments they told him not to do. And so what happens? But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See, now this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. It's just a little tiny city. Please let me escape there. It is not a little one, question mark, and my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the city, the name of the city was called Zoar. So here we are. We've got them out. We're saying, let's move. Let's go. Two commandments. You're going to go to the mountains. Don't look back. Don't look back. Don't go back. Once you leave, you get out of that, that city, out of that lifestyle, out of that, get out. Do not go back because you're going to have consequences if you go back. And what happens? He then sits there and pushes back and says, I, there's a little city over there. The one that's supposed to be destroyed, it's a little one. 
don't destroy that one. We can just go there. For some reason, I don't think I'm going to make it to the mountains. I don't want to leave in the mountains. I want to stay here on the plane. And the, and the angel said, okay. But then what happens? The sun had, had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor, Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Well, if you look and study the language, some believe, and, and I don't think so. I think he just they just literally looked back behind with a heart of saying, how dare that city be destroyed, and I want to go back and live in that city. And look what the consequence happened here. Judgment came upon her because her heart was not right. Some believe she actually went back into the city and suffered the consequences of the fire and brimstone coming down. Here it just says to me, she looked back. She, she didn't agree with what was going on. The angels just told her, you've got to get out, Lot, and take your family. I'm going to bring them out. We're going to bring you to safety, tell you what to do. This is what you And obviously she had to be moved out, and her heart was not a willing heart. But God wasn't going to do it until those, those people were out. He had already promised and said you would be set free from that. You would be taken out from that. And look at Sodom and Gomorrah. is the cities who saw the power and the grace and the mercy of God than any other people in the region saw God move in their lives by rescuing them before, bringing them down. All the things are going on. All the examples of Melchizedek and Abraham and the testimonies and all the things that God used these men to share here. And none of that helped them to stay focused and walk with the Lord. To have a relationship with God. They still wanted to follow their flesh and the things of the world. Remember, Sodom was a beautiful place. It was located down in that fertile, beautiful land down by the Dead Sea at the time. Some believe that it, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah is buried under the Dead Sea now. But they were down in that area of the Dead Sea in the southern part, and it was beautiful, it was productive, it was seen in, remember if you're in chapter 13, verse 10, it was like the garden of the Lord. But yet with all the privilege, with all the beauty, with all the paradise, and with all the benefits of this geographical area, all the blessings that come from this beautiful weather and beautiful land, that did not change their hearts toward God. It changed their hearts to go against God. To a point where she, even Lot's wife just could not see herself anywhere else but there. She loved the world Sodom too much and regretted its destruction. And she turned into a pillar of salt. We see in Luke 17, 32, 
these cryptic words and these kind of a thing that says, remember Lot's wife. Remember that scripture? Remember Lot's wife. Why does that just say that? Because it was to remind you and I, like Lot's wife, no Christian should have a heart like Lot's wife, where we sit there at the end of the age, a heart that loves the world more than God. And the fact that they say, God, please don't bring judgment on this wicked world because I love the world too much. I'm enjoying life way too much. Don't come back and rapture us out of here. I love, I got things to do. My bucket is full of things I want to accomplish. You don't destroy this world. We need to look forward to our deliverance of, by God. And not back at worldly passing away and the ripe for judgment. In verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. God gave him a smoke signal to let him know, Abraham, there wasn't even ten righteous. But I did bring out, your, bring out Lot and his family. I did what part? I brought him out, but there was not ten righteous, so the city had to be destroyed. And then Lot went up to Zoar. And dwelt in the mountains. Ooh. The little town that he wanted to go to because he didn't want to go to the mountains. Now we see after the destruction and the smoke signal, what did that send a message to Lot? Lot went out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains just like God said he would. So maybe in his mind he's like, oh, God's not messing around here. That could have been me. I'm not supposed to be in the city. God said to go to the mountains. So now maybe Lot said, I better go to the mountains like God said. And him and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. You better be afraid of God. Maybe it was because of the people. Remember, the, these people were going to get destroyed too. They were wicked. Maybe they realized, ooh, I don't even want to be around here. These people or the city, whatever happened, he, he left. So now... They were afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he and his two daughters dwelt in the cave in the mountains there. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come in to us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that, he, we, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So now you're getting a sampling of your children, if you raise them in the world, in the standards of the world, and the, you rely upon the, the, by sight and not by faith, and don't know that your God is bigger than the situation you find yourself in, then here's an example of what will happen to your children. They will do what the world does. Here we see incest. They now they actually develop a plan to get dad drunk so he doesn't know and then lays with them so they can get pregnant because they want to have a child and because they were in their minds that there was no other men. Well, that, that cannot be. You were in Zoar. You saw people in Zoar. There 
other men in the world? Do you not think God was going to bring a man in your life so that you can be married and have a child? Or do you have to take it upon your own self, women, and sit there, I'm going to figure out a way to find and get a man, and I'm going to make it happen because I want to be married, and I want to have children, and I'm going to figure out a way. Now, that never happens today, now, does it? But you see what happened there. That they lean on their own understanding and they cause sin right there after all of this took place. Verse 33, so they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and, and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it happened the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make drink, him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that, he, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she, when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of, of Ammon, the Ammonites, to this day. So we see here, they take it upon themselves. They figure out a way. It happens. They get pregnant. And now we have two new lineages, tribes, the Moabites, the Amorites, who become absolute enemies of, the, of Israel. Absolute, just like Ishmael. Did it in the flesh. Now we have the entire Arab world coming against God's people. We see these two daughters leaning on their own understanding and desperately wanted to keep the lineage of the father. And then two more tribes of now becomes enemies God's people. When you do it in the flesh, you're going to get results that are going to bring destruction and go against God and God's people. Just remember that. If you make a decision today and it's a selfish decision, a fleshly, worldly decision, just know that eventually will bring about destruction to God's people. Someone, God's people around you, someone is going to be hurt. Be it your spouse, your children, your family, your friends. Your There's going to be destruction and it will be harm will be brought. That is why it's so important that we make decisions that are pleasing and honoring to God. And lean upon the promise of God and avoid and stay away from the destruction. Amen.